Thank you, choir. Thank you, James. Before I pray, I just want to point out a reality that we live into every single time we gather here for worship. It's the tension of the world that exists around us. I want to acknowledge the sorrow uh, and the grief that the world, the collective community, is feeling right now around the loss of life in South Korea and in Somalia, the loss of life and tragedy and grief that we live into again every single time we come here to worship. Now this hour can feel pristine and pure and joyful, and it is. It can be all of those things. But this hour does not require that we leave any of that stuff at the door when we walk in. And so in this moment, we, we can talk about a text, we can sing, uh, a mighty fortress is our God, and we can also hold in tension the very real things that we are struggling, the struggles that we see in the world around us, and we can find hope, we can find a place of solace, or maybe we can just find a place to sit in our questions and our sorrow. So if that is the place that you are in today, wonderful. We're glad that you're here. Friends, let us pray. God, we come to you this morning with hearts broken and hearts full. We are grateful and we are anxious. We are full of conviction and uncertainty, devotion and doubts. For this is the life of faith. As we continue on these sacred journeys, we ask that you guide us, challenge us, inspire us to show forth your mercy, your grace, and your love in all that we do. This we pray in the name of the one who holds us all, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, our scripture reading for today comes from the gospel according to Luke chapter 14. In this portion of the passage, we encounter Jesus, who is at a Sabbath dinner party at the house of a leader of the Pharisees. Hear now God's word for you today, the parable of the great dinner. One of the dinner guests, upon hearing Jesus, said to him, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of land, and I must go out and see it. Please accept my apologies. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my apologies. Another said, I've just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the servant returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to him, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, sir, what you ordered has already been done and there's still room. Then the master said to his servant, go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Friends, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Over the past few weeks, we have been on this collective journey talking about the practice of stewardship. Normally, this conversation is saved for a particular Sunday in the church year known as Pledge Sunday or Commitment Sunday. For us, that's next week. Now, the preacher for that day is likely to deliver a rousing speech about the meaningful ministry of that particular church and why you, as a churchgoer, a member, a Christian, should give. It's not a bad tradition. It's just incomplete. After all, stewardship isn't just a one-time event. It is a way of life. It isn't just some financial obligation. It is a sacred opportunity. But most importantly, stewardship isn't about what we can or what we should give. It is about what God has already given to us. In that regard, stewardship is how we, mortal humans, participate in God's holy work. One could argue that much of, if not all, of the life of faith is an act of stewardship. Acknowledging the vastness of this topic, we at First Press have been taking our time unpacking what this practice really means, what it really entails. Our journey started two weeks ago with the fundamental question, who do we belong to? What kind of master do we serve? Whose blessings are we the stewards of? We found our answers to those questions in the most unexpected and most uncertain of places, the wilderness, the very place God brought the Israelites out of slavery to in order to establish a new way of being, a new way of belonging. Through the provision of manna, God taught the Israelites that they no longer need to hustle or hoard, overwork or overtill the land in order to survive, for they belonged to God. And in remembering that simple fact, whether in the wilderness or the promised land, the Israelites were called to be faithful stewards of whatever blessings might come their way. Then last week, we considered the question, what belongs to us? What are we holding on to? What do we own that ultimately owns us? Pondering that question, we looked to the Gospel of Matthew and came to terms with the, the hard truth that there is a cost to discipleship. There is a cost to following Jesus. And oftentimes, that cost feels like a price that is too high to pay. But whether you are a rich young man or a struggling, struggling fisherman, the higher truth is that paying that cost always comes with an invitation to life. Give up your earthly treasure and gain heavenly blessings. Release your worldly belongings and find belonging in Christ. Today, both of these teachings come to a head in our passage from Luke 14, the parable of the great dinner. Now, I will be honest, after spending the entirety of my young adulthood in New York City, I never had to learn the art of the dinner party. There was no space in my apartment to store dishes and cookware, let alone a table big enough to host. My idea of a good dinner party was eating pizza on a sofa over a coffee table. Now that is definitely not the case in the Bible. 
Whether we are in Exodus or Matthew or Luke, I love how scripture doesn't waste its time with obscure analogies or complicated symbols. Instead, it speaks in a language we can all understand, the language of food and money and the table. You see, in the same way that money is about more than just money, well, guess what? The dinner party is about more than just the dinner party. If anyone understands the truth of that statement, it is Martha Stewart. Because according to our dear friend Martha, there are a number of rules one must abide by when hosting or attending a dinner party. For the host, the rules are about preparation more than anything else. Plan ahead. Make sure you have enough food and drink. Be generous in your serving. But for the guests, the rules are about respect and gratitude. RSVP on time. Show up on time. Be a gracious presence. Share something about yourself, but also be curious about the other guests. These rules, of course, predate Miss Martha, an ancient code of conduct that exists to affirm the generous and even vulnerable act of opening up one's home, oneself, to another. Whether you are in ancient or modern times, the Near East or North America, the purpose of the dinner party is to extend a sense of belonging. That was, of course, the intent of our host in Luke 14. A generous host with an extensive guest list. Now, for a party that big, it would have taken weeks to prepare and a small fortune to put on, a true labor of love. But as the parable goes, in that final hour, many of the guests began to back out, citing a litany of excuses, each one more offensive than the last. Now looking through this, looking at this with a modern lens, we might miss the gravity of the disrespect, but let me tell you, it's there. It's like someone telling you, I'm so sorry I can't come to your only child's wedding that you've been planning for a year. You see, I just bought a brand new car and now I just need to make sure it turns on. Please accept my deepest apologies. Excuses meant to convey a message. You see, chances are the kind of guests wealthy enough to own land or five yoke of oxen were also the kind of guests who didn't attend dinner parties with just anyone, let alone the poor and disgraced, the outcast and the marginalized. These excuses communicated that not only were these people not going to attend this dinner party, but that they didn't want to. Breaking every rule in Martha's book, we see how these guests lacked a sense of gratitude, how they lacked a sense of humility, but worst of all, how they lacked a sense of imagination. You see, they couldn't envision a party like the one this host was throwing. They couldn't comprehend how one meal could feed that many people. They couldn't imagine a table that seated the rich with the poor, the powerful with the weak, the insider with the outsider, side by side, eating the exact same food, drinking the exact same wine, being honored in the exact same way. And in the end, they couldn't believe, they couldn't receive what they couldn't imagine. But for those who could, 
For those whose minds were open and hearts were willing, what they would find was a table that just kept on getting bigger, an invite list that just kept on getting longer, and a feast that just kept on getting grander. What they would experience was a party where there was room enough, dignity enough, belonging enough for all. All they had to do was show up and have the courage to reimagine everything. Indulging my love of alliterations, the word for week one was remember. The word for week two was release. Embrace yourself. I know this will come as a shock, but the word for week three is reimagine. Now, the real irony of stewardship is that God doesn't need any of us, any of us, to throw a good party. The invitations are going out regardless. The food is going to be amazing regardless. The party is going to happen regardless. The question for us then is, are we willing to reimagine the finite places and spaces and resources of this world to inhabit the abundance that God has for us all? Do we actually believe that we belong to God? Are we really ready to follow Jesus? Are we truly willing to see what God can do with the little and the lot that we have? Can we reimagine it all? For Christian activist Shane Claiborne, reimagining meant taking the verse from Isaiah about beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and doing exactly that. From town to town, Claiborne and his friend Mike Martin, a Mennonite blacksmith, talk about the horrors of mass shootings and the urgency for Christians to actually do something about gun control. And at each stop, they use Martin's forge to convert a rifle into a garden tool. For my uncle, Kyungsoo Kim, a missionary in Nepal, reimagining meant that re- meant reevaluating his understanding of the word mission in a country ravaged by climate change-induced poverty, houselessness, and inequity. At night, he still works on Sunday school curriculum for local churches, but during the day, he is planting trees one by one, at the foot of a landfill. To date, he has planted 30,000 trees. Now, these are just two examples, and I'm not done. Today, we are going to hear from, I I have the honor of sharing the pulpit with two of my dearest friends, two individuals that you might know quite well who are engaged in the faithful work of imagining. So at this time, I want to invite up Don Louie and Ralph Anderson to come on up and join me. Thank you, Devin. I just want to bask in the presence of these amazing individuals who I love so much and who I know you all love so much. Okay, so we are talking about reimagining, and these are two people who have seen ordinary, mundane, expected resources in the world and have transformed them or at least allowed themselves to reimagine 
what God has for us. So I want to start with you, Don. Don, you've been involved in a, ministry, a beloved and longtime ministry of this church, Street Meal. And so I guess my first question for you is, what did it reimagine? What was available or not available before that Street Meal saw and met a need for? It really started because there were so many homeless on the street. And that winter, there, it was rather cold, and the church was asked by some of the groups around here if we would uh, host uh, an overnight uh, spot. So we used Westminster Hall to keep people overnight for a month. And I think this went on for a couple of years and went up to maybe like one month or two months. And the second part was a matter of food. And there was a, what was called a quarter meal on the weekdays that would serve food at lunchtime. But there was nothing at, in the, in the uh, weekends. So they went around to the churches and asked the very same thing. And that's how we got involved. First, we were doing one meal a, a month. And then we went to two meals a month. So it was really started from the need that was part of the community. If, if you were in Berkeley at the time, it was really chaotic, and that was our response to it. How many years has Street Mill been around? Gosh, it's... Several I, decades I, now. It, I, it has to be 35, 40 years ago. So I was reading this article that quoted our member Marie Corwin, and she was talking about how in the early manifestations of Street Meal, uh, it was just handing out, the, the goal was to hand out food. Yes. But even the act of handing out food, which seems like a really sacred and faithful act, was reimagined to involve what? Even that was by, almost by accident. We, okay. we had some problems with crowd control. There were so many people coming. And that's how I got involved. So the very, very beginning wasn't my involvement, but it was part of our Sunday school class. So I knew about it. And when uh, Reverend Larkin had an announcement, he needed some people for crowd control. I mean, I felt like I can't cook, and I really couldn't. So that wasn't mine. But this, like anybody can stand out there and do a crowd control to some extent. And that's what I did. And then from that, it just, I, I don't know. It just went on, and it grew and it got bigger and people were volunteering different services. There was one family, and I think they were the first family that did something over and above that, was that they, were, they had decided that they weren't going to give each other gifts that Christmas. And so over the year, they saved all that money and they bought gifts and clothing for our guests here mm -hmm. at the church. And even the fact that I used the word yes, that was part of what we decided that we were not going to be looking at our, the people coming as anything but yes, and that mm. we would be their host and that we would serve them and we would try to build a sense of community. So that was something that was lifted up, was that um, the unimagined version was just the transaction of handing out food. And yes. the reimagined version was a table where prayer was happening and relationships were being yes, built and yes. community was being fomented. Yes. Yeah. It, I looked over the first test press times when yeah. uh, I was asked to do this and I was looking over all the things that we did and beyond the 
giving of gifts at Christmas time. We started a toiletry ministry. We started, uh, there was a family in the church that wanted to sing and they came and sang. Uh, people came with their children and they passed out crackers and I didn't realize until it happened how big a thing that was. A lot mm. of the people were homeless or not only homeless in the sense, but I, I meant alone. Yeah. And, and missed their families and missed the kids. Yeah. And that was a big thing. Yeah. So it grew in many, many different ways that way and it was just amazing. All right, I'm going to come back to you, so don't get rid of that mic. Okay. Uh, Ralph, so you, Ralph is, for those of you who don't know, how could you possibly not know, Ralph is our amazing director of facilities. And as you look around and walk this physical plant, the director of facilities is a huge ministry role in this church. And so uh, the, the reimagining that I want to talk to you about is our sacred rest center. Uh, previously known as the the field, the yes, the the plot of land that had puddles that just somehow never dried up even in extreme drought. So tell us about the evolution of that space, what it was before, and what it came to be reimagined as. Yeah. So when I came in, um, the field was pretty much used by ministries and any events that. Um, rented the space for picnics and, you know, frolicking and um, uh, the college ministry, the, the, the university ministry would use it for their uh, uh, um, uh, lunches and things like that. Um, and and it, it, was, it was in uh, questionable repair. Um, or ill repair at different times. Um, we repaired it, then it would, something would happen with the roots of the trees and break into the irrigation and cause a nice little puddle, or then it grew in, we put tarps over it, and, and then we, we worked around it, and um, VBS was the, probably the biggest uh, um, users of the, of the space, um, and so it, it, it became problematic over time, um, but still in use, we used what we had. Mm -hmm. um, and then it became a conversation of what to do with the people in the neighborhood that did not have homes um, or needed a space to rest during the day. And prior to um, it being what it is, the field being used, um, the consideration was it went into spaces like, you know, could we use the sanctuary? Could people come in during the day to rest in the sanctuary? Could people come and rest in the plaza? Could people come and rest in different parts of the spaces of the building? And after many conversations, it went to, and, and this is in conjunction with Tara, with Cornerstone, and all the people that are involved, um, that the field was the best place to go. Um, and it met with a lot of different conversations. We had some hard conversations, conversations around it, and it landed into the space that we see today. Hmm. Uh, so I think it was used I think the journey was worth it, and um, what we have now is pretty incredible. Where on any given Friday, close to 30, between 35 and 40 people are being served from the community. Um, throughout the week, anywhere from 10 to 15 people per day are being, see, being seen um, in this space. Um, and this morning, um, because we, they turned the space back over to us for the weekend and after hours, the kids that are playing football in the plaza, I said, let me open up the space, let you throw the football around in there. So it's repaired, it looks good, um, and you, we can use it. 
what was an old definition or an old idea that had to let go, that we, the group, had to let go of in order to make space for this reimagining? Well, it's ours. Hmm. It's ours, right? We want to use it the way we want to use it, when we want to use it, even if we're not using it. Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, and that sometimes gets challenged. Often that gets challenged. Um, but if I may, um, we wouldn't have been there. We wouldn't have, wouldn't have been in a place to even imagine that if it weren't for Street Meal. Hmm. Street Meal stretched our hearts and stretched our arms and stretched our legs and, and stretched our ability to step into places where we could even understand or see the need. Like we, had, we saw it before, but this is an, an action. And, 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 and I know the journey takes sometimes a long time to get there, sometimes. But the work, 40 years of that work prepped, it tenderized us. Hmm. It got us in a place where we could say, oh yeah, well, we have, the, we have the muscle memory of doing this. Let's do it. And God has said, okay, go bigger. Because the need is greater. It's, the need was great then. The need is greater now. Okay, so the, for the two of you, Rev Ralph, <laughs> Rev Ralph, everybody. For the two of you, what did the reimagining activity, process, sacred moment teach you? What did, what did it reveal to you about community, about God, about yourself? Like, what did it open up? Go ahead, Don. That, that's the hard part, because I don't think any of us knew exactly what we were doing. Hmm. We had in mind that we were we used two, two passages of the Bible. We used a passage of hands and feet and being there and being God's representatives. And a lot of the reason why we decided to use the word yes was so that we would not be put on a different level as, our, as the people that we were with. The second part was to be, oh gosh, I can't even remember what it is now. But in essence, what it came out to be was that we were passing God's grace on to the people. And we, did, and, and we tried to do as much as we could to, to level the playing field so that it didn't seem like we were serving them or we were over them or that in some way right. I was a, economically or socially or whatever above them in any ways. Yeah. I was asked many questions of that type, and it was hard. Sometimes it was hard for me to tell, to say why I was doing what I was doing. Hmm. Uh, one of our other guests, he wrote in the uh, one of the articles. He wrote that sometimes it's hard to tell uh, who is serving who. Hmm. Oh my gosh! And what he was saying is that he could see God's grace in all of the all of the meal and the people that came and the people who served and in the people that uh, the conversations and all. I, I'm not a very outward person to begin with, but it, that opened me. Hmm. And the 35 and 40 years, it, it, it surprises me. I, I didn't know I was doing this for as long as I was doing it. Yeah. Uh, some of you 
know that I dropped out about four or five years ago because of my wife. And I went back uh, about a month ago, and I met one of the guys there that I've known for 35, 40 years. Wow. And we sat down and we talked for a while. And then I got up and I had to do something else. And he was nearby, but I mean, he's very quiet and he's very reticent anyways. But at, as the meal went on, then uh, as he was getting up to leave, he passed it me this folded piece of paper. And me being the age I am now, I forgot. So I forgot and I put it in my pocket. I put the, uh, and I left the jacket at, at church. So it wasn't until last week that I noticed what he had written. And what he had given me was a, a poem that either he had read or he had written and copied out of a book. And the poem was really his saying, I'm sorry. Mm. I mean, that's, that's God's grace going both ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know how else to say it, that that's, that's the street mill. I mean, I, I wonder why I've done this for 35, 40 years. It's, I don't know. That's, I certainly didn't do this, start this with that in mind. Right. I just came because well, anybody can stand there and say, stand in line or I'll pass out tickets. Mm. But it's been, God's, it's been God's blessing to me and to my life. Amen. And it's, it's part of my healing. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Don. All I would say is that, um, you know, when you're doing it, you think that it's what you're giving, who's serving who, that you're doing this, that it's part of a programming. It's a part of, you know, it's a part of the, our goals. It's a part of internally staff. We're saying, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to commit this. We're going to introduce this to the congregation, see what they say. It gets, comes back to us. We go, go. Let's move on it. But I think it's more than that. I think it's deeper than that. I think it's what's happening in us. I think as much as we're doing for someone, God is doing something in us greatly in a way that the next 10, 15, 20 years, it'll look totally different. It'll be beyond our wildest dreams. It'll be beyond sacred rest. It'll be beyond street meal. It'll be beyond the sanctuary renewal. It'll be beyond any of that. It'll be beyond the patio project. It'll be beyond the lights and the, and the grass and the trees. And it'll be beyond anything that we can even think is reasonable in our plans today. Hmm. So I say just do. Keep doing. Do what, do what we're doing. Just keep doing it. Um, I'll give you this little story. And it's, it's crazy. And, uh, and it just keeps coming back to me. My son was a little baby, and I shared the story with you. He was a little baby, and he was walking down the street, and he saw, I, we were going to get pizza, and he saw mountains. He kept saying, he took his hand out of my hand, and he was like, and he wouldn't move. I see mountains in the way. I see mountains in the way. And I was like, I see no, there's no mountains. Give me a hand, boy. Let's keep going. We gotta get this pizza, get back to feed the rest of the troops. And as we walked on, he kept saying, he kept seeing mountains, he kept seeing mountains. And I could not see what he was seeing. But he, I got down to his level, and I looked ahead, and the concrete was waving like this. The trees had pushed the concrete up. And for him, he saw that as a mountain. He saw it as an obstacle that he could not get through. And I said, if you hold my hand, we'll make it through it. And I think God is saying the same thing to us. That don't matter what the obstacle is. It may look like a mountain to you, but I don't see it that way. If you hold my hand, we'll make it through it. Amen.
So guess what? Your homework assignment for this week is to think big, think broad, grab onto God's hand, look ahead, without knowing how long it's gonna last or what it's gonna take, and think of something in your life that you can reimagine, something in this space. Reimagine something. Turn a rifle into a garden tool. I don't garden, so a gardening tool. Uh, take a, a table or a, servant and tr- uh, a service and turn it into a community. Take a field and turn it into a sacred rest space. Take a mountain and turn it into a little bump of concrete. What is something that God is calling you or us together to reimagine? Because we don't have to do this work alone. Dawn, Ralph, I love you two so much. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you.